If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with David Crockett, the king of the wild frontier. He'll be answering our call on September 19th, 1835, at the age of 49. He will die fighting at the Alamo before his next birthday. As a boy, Crockett lived in the woods of Tennessee, and his dinner was whatever he shot that day. The marksmanship skills that he developed in his youth served him well in the many wars he was part of. But David didn't like killing men. He liked killing and eating bears, and his reputation as a hunter captured the media's attention, making him a nationwide celebrity. After seeing how poorly people were being treated and being fed up with the decisions being made by government, he used his celebrity to work his way up to the U.S. Congress. He is known for telling wonderful stories, as you'll see, and doing what was right despite the cost. Yet, war makes men do things they regret, and this conversation starts with a horrific story that probably gave Crockett a little PTSD and shaped many of his decisions in Congress about the horrible treatment of Native Americans in his time. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and sharpshooters everywhere, I give you David Crockett. Hello, Mr. Crockett, is that you? Hello? Sir. Hello? Mr. Crockett, sir, I have been looking forward to speaking with you all day. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing five feet from one another. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And Mr. Crockett, sir, you have lived a full and colorful life, and I was just hoping that I could ask you some questions. But before I do, I understand this is a strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you might have first? Well, I'm pleased to say that you pretty much answered them. For a second there, I thought this ringing from this crazy little rectangle here was me about to sign my ticket to go to the insane house. I didn't know what in the world that was. I'm reminded of a time while I was in Congress. I sat down there to one of them fancy dinners, and they brought out the dessert. and It was these sweet bowls of cream. But I was mortified to find out that when I bit into that cream that it was frozen. So... They told me it was something called ice cream, and I said, well, it's good, but I reckon the general won't be too pleased that you went ahead and froze this sweet cream. So what flavor was it? Well, it was just basically the cream from the milk of a cow with a little bit of sugar and a little vanilla root inside of it. it tasted mighty good, actually. Wasn't used to the cold texture, though. That was something that was pretty bizarre to me. Yeah, no, this is, in our time, this is the most common thing of all. In fact... Now that ice cream that you're talking about, it comes in all these different flavors. You can get it in cherry and vanilla and blueberry and raspberry and and just all kinds of crazy flavors. You can have chocolate in it and people eat it all the time. So that, but that was your first experience with ice cream, huh? Well, indeed it was. Wasn't my last because I stayed in Congress for a little bit more until the good folks of Tennessee decided I was worn out and gave me a respite. You think these people in Congress, maybe some of them should, I've seen some pictures of some of them in your time. You think they should eat a little less ice cream, maybe get outside a little bit more? 
Well, let me tell you something. These folks here, they wouldn't know good food from bad food, I tell you. They they want to eat rich foods all the time and act like a bunch of big wigs, and they sit around getting fat and lazy. But if they was to go around doing what I do in my downtime when I'm away from Congress, which is primarily hunting bear and tending the farm, well, they do that and eat on fat bear meat and a little bit of corn pone. Why, they could stand to lose a few pounds, and I guarantee their health and the nation would be better for it. Yeah, no, I think you're 100% right. That is for sure. Everybody's trying to act like they're a big wig, and if they just kind of get down and, you know, do some of the things that the regular people would do, they might understand what the regular people actually need. Well, they don't understand that for sure. I guarantee it. I'd you know, probably go ahead and say that I'm the first politician since the beginning of this country, with maybe the exception of a few of them founding fathers, such as Washington and the like, that actually understands the common folk. Yeah, there's no question about that. Your life is so interesting in our time. Your reputation in our time and throughout history is just fantastic. I mean, you have this beautiful history of serving honorably as you worked up through the different levels of government, and then you were in Congress, and you fought for people that were less privileged, and you have this reputation, this sterling reputation of just doing what was right, even though it wasn't easy. People refer to you as the king of the wild frontier, and along with your great reputation. And as I learn about you, before all of that happened, you got involved in this Creek War, the Creek Indians War, which baffles me a little bit because these seem like your kind of people. You know what I mean? Kind of living off the land, and the land and nature is really important to them. How did you get involved in that? Well, sir, I'll tell you the truth about it, and... It's not a pretty truth, mind you, but uh, in 1813, there was this faction of Creeks. They was, called themselves the Red Sticks. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear there's a difference between these two factions, one being the Red Sticks. They painted their war clubs and their sticks red, and uh, that meant that they was on the war path, that they was the violent folks, so to speak. And then you had the others who painted theirs white, and we called them the White Sticks. So there was two different factions of them there Creeks. But them Red Sticks, why, in 1813, they went ahead down Mississippi Territory. They botched up about 400 of them folks down at Fort Mims. And when they boxed them up, I tell you what, they went ahead, and it was a horrible sight to behold. Now, I didn't see with my own eyes, but I heard the accounts of the folks who did. They said there was guts strewn over the place, that there was limbs hacked off and talked about, and children when they were separated from their mothers and tossed about in various manners it was just an absolute massacre that's the only word i can put to it so needless to say when word got back to me in my neck of the woods about that my dander was up and i figured only war would make it right again so i decided to go ahead when the call went out for volunteers to join up with the regular army and go down to mississippi territory so we could wage war against some creeks well naturally i volunteered but now my first wife, Polly, she heard about this, and she did not care for the idea at all, especially the fact of the matter. We had three young'uns at the time that I was preparing to leave, and she gave many a tear on my account, begging and pleading with me to go ahead and stay here and look after the kids and look after herself, of course. But I told her, I said, if every man was willing to wait for his wife to be ready for him to go to war, why well, we all be burnt and scalped alive in our cabins. That's for she sure. figured out that, obviously, that despite her remonstrances and pleas, that I wasn't going to be able to just stay home easily. 
So I went ahead over to Camp Blunt, and that's when I met Andy Jackson. He was in charge of the Army at the time, and he was going ahead and gathering up a whole bunch of us, volunteers, regular soldiers, and the like. And I was one of the first crew that was sent out from Camp Blunt to go ahead and fight them creeks. Did you say Andy Jackson? Yes, sir, I did. Are you talking about President Andrew Jackson? Well, if you want to call him a president, you go ahead. That's your own privilege. Don't exactly have too much love for Andy Jackson right now, considering some of the recent things that have happened. But I do. I will say that I actually honor the office of the man, sometimes more than I honor the man himself. Well, we'll come back to Andy Jackson. By the way, I can't help as we're talking here, I can't help but hear there is a rooster crowing in the background. So n anybody listening to this recording is going to know that it's either noon or it's morning your time. <laughs> so which is it, noon or morning? <laughs> well, it is noon. We got a couple of these here chickens in the barnyard, and unfortunately, they like to crow any time of day. I know some of these city slickers and such, they like to say, well, oh, the roosters, they only crow in the morning time. Well, they don't. They crow whenever they want to. It's not just to go ahead and be an alarm clock for you, so to speak, but they also go ahead and just crow to go ahead and mark their territory. Oh, so they're noisy all the time. They are noisy all the time, trust me. There's been times I've woke up at about, say, 4 or 5 in the morning, and then birds, they're just crowing away. I can't get a bit of sleep for them sometimes. Okay. All right, go back to Andy Jackson. So he's the first one to send you, or tell me how that went? Well, see, he was a general in charge of the whole volunteering recruiting ordeal, trying to get as many regular soldiers and volunteers to him as he possibly could. Because when he wanted to wage war, I tell you this, I do respect the man for this. When he wants to wage war and defeat his enemy, well, he's going to stop at no expense to go ahead and make sure that it happens. So I went ahead and I volunteered, signed on for 60 days. And shortly afterwards, I was attached to Major Gibson and Colonel at the time, but he ended up becoming General John Coffey. And afterwards, we got a few passel of us gathered together and we went on down to the Mississippi Territory, and that's when we started making our way into the hostile territory, trying to figure out where exactly them creeks was at. But the whole time, General Jackson, he was kind of in and out of things. You know, he was actually staying behind at Camp Blunt for a while, and then he moved elsewhere until he could recruit more men and send them down until finally, when he come down himself, we actually had a good-sized force down there in Alabama Territory. Hold that thought for a second. So when you say recruit more men, it, this is very strange. In our time, we have a standing army. So if there's anybody's going to go to war, they take the army that we have, and they're like, that's it. Go over and do what you got to do. Are you just like going from county to county and city to city and saying, hey, who wants to go fight these Creek Indians? Well, it's not entirely done that way back east, I'm told, at least not since we won our freedom from the Britishers. But at the time, it was. But now, especially the time that I'm talking to you about, my time during the Creek War, well, you did have to do that. For the fact of the matter is that this is a frontier war, and you ain't going to have standing armies out there in the frontier, you know, but they won't be that common. So you have to go ahead and try and raise a militia is what it's called, which is a bunch of armed citizens. And so you have to go about from place to place, county, town to town, and go ahead and try and raise up as much men as you possibly can to go help you do the fighting. 
So as you're going from town to town and place to place, this is probably this makes a lot of sense because one of the things that I read about you is it seems like you're really good at recruiting men. And of course, as you became a, a congressman and you're also known for your ability to speak and rile up a crowd, I'm guessing that when you would stop in these different towns, you were probably telling stories of what happened what the Creek Indians did at Fort Mims, and you're basically like getting people excited so that they will, they'll follow you. Is that how it works? Well, I will say this. Considering where I'm at now and the fact that there's been a play about me and some of these almanacs written about me taking my exploits and turning them into super stories, I was not too much of a deal back then. You see, at the time, I was only a private when I enlisted. And it wasn't until close towards the end of my service that I actually got appointed to being a sergeant, which basically meant that I was still a private, but I just had a glorified title attached to it. But the main people who were in charge of the recruiting effort at the time when I was serving in the Creek War was, in fact, General Jackson. There was also, you know, Coffee and Gibson. They helped out some as well. So I didn't really have too much to do with the recruiting effort for the Creek War at the time. Okay. Well, keep going then. So, so then you enter in the hostile territory, and what happens next? So when we got down there into hostile territory, I'll tell you what happened next. We starved. And when I say we starved, I figure every freaking creature that was there, man, beast, you name it, they was getting ready to give up the ghost. We got down there, and the fact of the matter is that territory was so uncultivated at the time, there weren't hardly any farms. There was maybe a few tradesmen who had married Cherokee and Chickasaw women and the like, and they set up their farm there, but they were few and far in between. So we didn't have much food to go off of, and the supply lines, well, my goodness, you talk about taking forever and a day to get to us. And it got so bad to the point that I remember me and my friends and the regiment, we were so excited the fact that we shot one measly squirrel so we could divide it up amongst ourselves. Oh, my gosh. Indeed. It was not a good time, I'm telling you. We got to the point where, you know, I recall very vividly that one evening I went out onto this grassy plains as I was a scout at the time. And scout just basically meant that I looked for the signs of the hostiles and I also fetched in meat for the campfire. And I saw... This one turkey sitting out there in this prairie, if you will. And I went ahead and I took aim and I brought him down. And then afterwards I brought down another turkey. Well, that was the only game available to me. I didn't see any other squirrels. I didn't see any deer or anything like that. So I brought them two turkeys back to the regiment and we was mighty glad to have them. But I noticed when everybody was going ahead and taking their choice portions of meat, that there was this one soldier in our regiment and he was ailing on pretty bad. Matter of fact, he looked like he was getting ready to go ahead and give up the ghost. So I went ahead and talked to the sergeant in charge of the regiment at the time who was preparing his own meal. And I asked him, I said, is there any of that turkey left over? And he looked at me wistfully, wishing he could do more for me. He said, I'm sorry, but this is all I've got for my meal, and I'm mighty glad to have it. I, I can't keep going if I don't have anything to eat. And all he held up on his forked stick, which he was roasting it over the fire, was his turkey heart. And that was all he had to eat. And it was very much the same for many a man in the outfit that I was with. Wow. We had no more than maybe a few ounces of meat every other day if we was lucky. And sometimes it wasn't even that at all. Gosh, that sounds terrible. Okay, so you're starving now. And you're starving. 
And then mm-hmm. what next? So did you eventually engage the Creek Indians? Well, as a matter of fact, we did. Now, I have to say this is probably one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my life, probably second only to my first wife passing away. Now, at the time, when we were starving about near the end of our rope, we had actually heard word that there was an encampment of creeks not too far away from our position. By the way, when you say creeks, that's what the Creek Indians are called, correct? Well, the more formal name for them, if you want to get all fancy with it, is Muskogees, but we always just call them creeks. Okay, good. I promise I won't get fancy. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, you're all right. I dealt with it a little bit with it in Congress. Okay, keep going. So about the time that we was all about near the end of our ropes by starvation and such other means, well, then we actually got word from some Cherokee scouts who told us that there had been signs of the hostile creeks nearby. Well, Colonel Coffey and Major Gibson, they decided to go ahead and send out scouts to double-check and make sure that the Cherokee report was true. And they selected me as one of the scouts. Well, I told them I must have another man to follow along with me to make sure that we saw the reports as true as they could be. Well, that's when I selected a little old friend of mine. His name was George Russell. And George Russell, he wasn't, he wasn't older than I was. He, as a matter of fact, he was a couple years younger than I. And when the major and the colonel, they saw my choice of scout, they went ahead and told me this man, he ain't going to be worth nothing. He's just a bald-faced boy, uh, you know, and uh, I tell you, some folks, they kind of got this idea set in their head that the measure of a man is the facial hair on his beard. <laughs> but I told them, I said, if we go ahead and determine whether or not someone's of good quality, whether or not they got whiskers on their face or no, then the country's doomed. For a billy goat will have a better beard and have a better quality than the rest of us. So they saw I was mighty wrathy, and they decided to let George Russell come with me. Well, we set out to scouting, and sure enough, we did in fact find out that the Cherokees was telling the truth. So that's when we come on back, and we made our report known to the major. Well, Colonel Coffey, he had went out scouting as well, and he come back shortly after the same time I had. Now, here's the thing. As I come back with the very same report that Colonel Coffey had given, and when I told him, the major, well, he didn't seem too concerned about it. But when the colonel did, why, well, it was as true as gospel preaching, and the whole camp got up in an uproar and getting ready to move on out to try and find them creeks. And this convinced me of one of the hateful ways of the world. For I realized then that class does matter. And I also realized that unless you got some kind of a title to your name, folks will go ahead and treat you like dirt and won't even believe a single word you say as opposed to a man who went ahead and got his strike just because his family comes from a long line and a lot of money. Well, wow. we sit out there from the camp, and as we got further and further on down into Mississippi Territory, we saw more and more signs of them creeks. And that's when we got there, close to about a day's march or so, away from a village they call uh, Tallusahatchee. Now, when we got a few miles away, we knowed that we didn't realize how many soldiers there was up inside that village. So we decided to go ahead and wait until the early dawn hours before we made our attack. Now, it was in the very early pre-dawn hours of November the 3rd, and we went ahead 
and started making our lines all about the village. We had the regulars on the left and the right side, and the militia made up the main body in the square and the front lines, pushing forward to the village. Well, Major Gibson, he went ahead with an advance guard, and he alerted them creeks as soon as it was daylight to our presence. Well, they saw Major Gibson and his boys, and they started taking off and shooting at them, and they fell back. But that was when we went ahead, and we shot our rifles ourselves towards them. So it was back and forth for a few minutes there, and, you know, we gave them fire, and they returned as best as they could. And it got to the point that some of the women, they come running out of the village trying to ask that their lives be spared. And I recall at one point I seen seven women clinging on to the jacket of one of my comrades there in the regiment, and they were begging for him to spare their lives. Well, unfortunately, those pleas, they didn't really do much considering the fact that everybody's in a frenzy and half starved so our judgment wasn't exactly shall we say good at the time well we started pushing forward further and further into the village and as we did so the indians they soon realized that they were our property now i remember this one particular point i counted upwards of about 46 creek warriors who ran inside this cabin and we started to advance on them to go ahead and make sure that they could not escape. Well, as we got closer and closer, there was this one old squaw, and she was sitting there in the doorway of the cabin, and her arm, she couldn't have pulled back the bowstring, so what she does is she takes both her feet and plants them against the bow and knocks an arrow to it and then draws back and lets loose. With her feet? And when she let with her feet, and when she lets loose, she actually killed one of our sergeants. And I tell you, it was the first time I ever seen a fella killed with a bow and arrow, and it weren't a pretty sight, I guarantee it. Well, this sight so enraged all of us that we went ahead and fired upon her. And before she hit the ground of the cabin, she had about 20 musket balls plumb through her. Well, wow. afterwards, we went ahead and we set the cabin on fire, and we could hear them engines in there screaming for their gods. And I recall that... Just off to the right of the cabin, there was this little boy whose arm and his leg had been shattered by rifle balls, and he was trying to crawl away from the flames, but where he was so incapacitated, he couldn't really go anywhere. And so the heat of the flames from the cabin, they went ahead and burnt him up. I remember seeing the grease pouring out of him. The next day, we went ahead, and we heard that there was a fine potato cellar underneath the very same cabin that we had burnt up. And we started rooting through that cabin. And when we done so, we discovered a whole mess of potatoes down in there. Well, sir, I wish to tell you, and this is not to my credit by any means, but we had an area to eat but parched corn for weeks on end. And when we found that store of potatoes in the cellar, we went ahead and we ate till we nearly burst. Though I wish I could say I'd rather not. Or they've been cooked by the grease that run off them engines, the very same oh. ones that we had boxed up in that cabin and burnt alive. Oh my goodness, that is—I mean, it's—you'll—I mean, people will do anything when they're hungry, but you just never get that picture oh, out sir. of your head, do you? Sir, hungry ain't the word for it. Starving wouldn't even be an accurate description of how hungry we truly were. And the grease from the fat of the burning people cooked the potatoes 
Oh, fire hell, it looked like they'd been stewed with fat meat from a grizzly bear. Oh, jeez. Later in your life, you spent much of your career trying to fight on behalf of the Indians and realizing that what Andy Jackson was doing was not okay. Is that where this came from? Is this the moment where you knew that you were on the wrong side? Or did you feel like that, like you were on the wrong side? Well, sir, I can honestly tell you that what I felt at the time, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. But I do believe in some part that affected how I decided to vote a few years back against President Jackson's Indian removal bill. I also come to realize, not after this battle, but the Battle of Talladega, where we were actually just pawns for a bigger game where the plantation class and the southern landowners were actually trying to go ahead and remove the Indians from their homelands so they could expand their farms and try and make more money, and they didn't care who they had to get out of the way to do so. But I would say that Tallusahatchee would be one of the catalysts which got me to the point of where I am now, especially defending the Native Americans. Do they call them Native Americans in your time, or do they call them Indians? Well, I've heard both. I've heard Native Americans, considering they was here way before that, that explorer they called them. Christopher Columbus, I believe it was. Would you agree that's correct, Christopher Columbus? Yeah, yeah, we know who Christopher Columbus is, yes. Okay, well, I didn't know if you did or not, but Christopher Columbus, you know, he come there, he called them Indians, but, you know, some folks, they took to calling them Native Americans because they're native to this here land, and, well... What else do we call this land of ours but America? So you kind of put two and two together. Yeah, that But makes the sense. majority yields is the fact of the matter is that a lot of the folks, they don't care about them one way or the other. So I've heard them both called Indians, Indians, Native Americans. I've heard them called a little bit of all things. And some things I've heard them called wouldn't be repeatable in polite society. When you were talking at the very beginning of our discussion about the red sticks and the white sticks, so the red sticks were the ones were the Creek Indians that were ready to go to war, and the white sticks were the ones that were, well, not looking to go to war. What separated yes. the two? Was that, were they one tribe and just these were the war ones and these were the ones that weren't, or why the separation? Well, they were, in fact, one tribe, all right? But the thing is that the red sticks... They was already not very happy with the European encroachment, with us moving on to their lands. And so they went ahead and decided to wage war against us. But worse than that is that there was some Shawnee prophet by the name of Tecumseh, who way up in the Northwest Territory, while he started making a nuisance of himself and swearing up and down that if all the engines about was to go ahead and follow his words that he would rid the land of all whites and that they would actually drive us out of this country and then they would make a united Indian nation. And that was his words. And he actually went down to some of the creek villages and told them that when he stamped his foot into the earth, when he got back to his village, that an earthquake would happen that would rock their village all the way down to the foundations of their hut. And sure enough, he done so. When he got back to his home village, and an earthquake happened that actually destroyed one of the creek villages down there in Mississippi Territory. So needless to say, the Indians, being a superstitious bunch, why they believed them all fire. But there were still some of them creeks, the white sticks, that 
did not believe in him, and they did not want to risk an all-out war with the whites. So they actually decided to side with us. And that's where certain events, such as the Battle of Talladega and Horseshoe Bend, come into play with the Whitesteak faction of the Creeks, because they had sided with us. Yes. I see. So they were divided at that point. It was a civil war in and of itself, a civil war between their own tribe. Simply for yeah. the fact of the matter is that one side believed one way and the other side believed another, and they could not agree with each other on that. Was there an event – okay, so it seems odd to me that the Native Americans, that they're just on their land, living, hunting, raising their families, and then all of a sudden they go to Fort Mims and they just do this vicious, bloody massacre of man, woman, and child. Was there some event that – initiated their response to something that we did as Americans? Well, first of all, you have to realize the fact of the matter is that seeing as how they've been on this land a lot longer than we have, it was their homeland, and they weren't too keen on us moving in on their land, especially some of the lower-life folks who would go ahead and they would kill men, women, and children, didn't care who it was, just to go ahead and get rid of them engines on the land that they wanted for themselves. So there was already hostilities about that. And I assume you could imagine that you yourself, if you've been living on a piece of land for a long time, and someone comes in and suddenly tells you, well, hey, this land ain't yours, it's mine. And they went ahead and killed your wife and child to go ahead and get you off that land. Why, you wouldn't be too happy, would you? I'd be a red stick. Well, there you go. And that's one of the reasons why I did take part in the war, but mostly to defend my own family. I didn't really want to go after them and have all that needless killing. As a matter of fact, Palooza Hatchie, I told one of my friends in the regiments, I said, you know, I understand it's a necessary evil for us to go ahead and to defend our own families, and therefore much bloodshed is going to be brought about. But Palooza Hatchie, Talladega weren't so bad. I was there at that one. It wasn't pretty by any means. But Horseshoe Bend, which I wasn't at, I did hear reports of it. Well, let me put it to you like this. General Jackson, he tried to wipe the creeks off the face of the earth in one day. Whoa. And I told my friend at Tallusahatchee alone, I said, defending our families is one thing, wiping them off the face of the earth is another. Because by the time Tallusahatchee and Talladega, which I took part in, had already happened, I felt like I was pretty well satisfied on, you know, getting revenge for the massacre at Fort Bend. But Jackson, he went ahead and he took it up to a whole another level with Horseshoe Bend. Is Jackson a warmonger? I wouldn't necessarily say he's a warmonger, but I would say that if you ever wanted a fighting man, well, there you have him. Goodness gracious, I believe he's been in just about every battle that I've either participated in or, you know, every war that I've participated in. Battle of New Orleans, he actually done a good thing, keeping them British off our territory. Huh? But his command and the way he treated his troops a lot of the time, whether it was leading up to Talladega, Horseshoe Bend, or otherwise, well, a lot of folks will start to realize, and this is what actually got me out of Congress, is that their leader is not who they think he is. And I figure I'm one of the few folks in the nation who actually started pointing him out for the fraud that he is. He's not this great American hero, as a matter of fact. He drives his men mercilessly, doesn't care if they starve or not. And for his enemy, well, 
I put it to you like this. Under Jackson's command at Horseshoe Bend, from what I heard from those who served at that battle, my friend Abraham Nave, him being part of it, why, when the battle was over, there were so many dead creeks that they couldn't possibly go ahead and count all the bodies. And so they went ahead and they cut off noses of the dead instead. And they put the noses in a pile to make it easier to count all the dead and wounded. They counted the noses? They counted the noses, sir. Boy, Jackson. I mean, Jackson is on money in our time. I don't know if he's on money in your time. He's on the $20 bill now. And, I mean, as I hear more about him, like, you don't want to be on the dark side of Andrew Jackson, do you? Most certainly not. I've known that man for half my born life, I'd say, and that man would fight a duel at the drop of a hat. Matter of fact, there's one duel he fought all because some man called his woman a whore, and Jackson didn't take kindly to that, so he challenged the man to a duel. But Jackson wasn't really a good shot at the dueling pistol, so he goes ahead and he lines up and he waits for the other guy to fire first, and when he shoots, Jackson got hit just above the heart. But he didn't even flinch. That old son of a gun stood there, covered up the spot above his heart to go ahead and stop the bleeding as much as he could. Then he takes his turn, levels his dueling pistol, and shoots the other opponent right clean through the chest and kills him right then and there. But he let him shoot first so he could take his time and really kill the guy. He let him shoot first so he could do just that. Have you ever been in a duel? I have not. I did have one time where uh, there's this fellow in Congress who went ahead to making a good deal of sport of me, and, well, I went ahead, and I guess you could say I got a little bit of a wild hair in me, so I started to <laughs> discredit him the same way he discredited me. Well, when he found out that I was making a good deal of fun of him, his honor at that point, he felt, was impugned. So I went ahead and didn't think nothing about it. But as I was heading into the floor of Congress one day, why, he goes ahead and he challenges me to a duel. I said, all right, that's fine. You went ahead and you set the time and the place. I'll go ahead and decide the weapons, all right? He said, okay, sounds good to me. So he set the time and the place, and we met up there the very same day. And I said, well, seems how you've set the time and the place, I'm going to go ahead and choose my weapons now. Well, he was thinking I was going to pull out swords or pistols or something like that. But I realized, ain't no sense in that, all because of a few jokes or politicians bickering back and forth between one another. We do that all the time. Only difference is when we're in session and when we're out of Congress. But I went ahead and I told him my weapon of choice is the bow and arrow. And at that point, even his own seconds and thirds in the duel, they started taking to laughing so hard that the man realized his cake was dough and he cooled off right quick. So he called <laughs> off the duel and afterwards we become fairly good friends. Oh, jeez. We need more politicians that can think on their feet like this. Seriously, people like going to kill each other because somebody gets a little foul-mouthed. I mean, that happens, you know what I mean? People have tempers. It happens, but you don't have to kill each other over it. Oh, absolutely. They got tempers, they got mouths, they got honor, and so on and so forth. And I've heard tell that Jackson, and I know this for a fact, but he has a good mouth on him. I say good. It's good enough to make Satan himself blush. Wow. And he actually has a pet parrot right now that if you went ahead and tried to hold a conversation with that there parrot, which I've seen on occasion, why that parrot will go ahead and make your mama blush because that parrot has picked up almost every word old Hickory himself has said, and it ain't worth repeating in polite company. 
Is that what they call Andy Jackson, Old Hickory? Old Hickory. That's what they call him. They call him that because he's about as tough and resilient as an old hickory nut or an old hickory tree. He's the president with the swearing parrot. Swearing parrot. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Well, I'm glad that uh, you didn't lose that duel or really end up having to go through with it. That's good. How did the Creek War finally end? What was the end result? So the battle at Horseshoe Bend and then what? Did everybody just stop fighting? Did he, in fact, kill all the Creek Indians? How did it end? Well, the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, that was mighty close to the end of it. The Battle of Horseshoe Bend was probably one of the worst defeats, if not the worst defeat, for the Creek Nation as a whole. However, there were still Creek warriors who escaped from the Mississippi Territory down there near Alabama ways, and they retreated to the safety of the hostile tribes in Florida Territory. Now, the hostile tribes in the Florida Territory, they didn't care for the Americans. As a matter of fact, we found out that the British, because mind you, all this has taken place during what we call War of 1812, our second war against the British. The British were actually helping the hostiles, giving them guns and ammunition and things like that. And they were doing so in Florida as well as they were in the Mississippi Territory. Even up towards the north where Tecumseh was, that old Shawnee prophet I was telling you about. Well, anyhow, we found out that they had gone down the other ways. The Creeks had allied themselves with the Seminoles. And at that point, I had come back from a stint of relief where I would went home to check on my family and make sure they had enough meat and enough corn and things like that to last through the winter. And I went back down to fighting, especially when I found out we was heading down to the Florida Territory because there was talk of the British soldiers being near about. Now, I done went ahead and I'd fought the engines, but I went ahead and wanted to get a taste of the British fighting. So I went down there, signed on for the oath of militia duty, long about 60 days. But when I got down there, there wasn't hardly no fighting at all. Them creeks and them Seminoles, I tell you, Lord have mercy, they got lost in them swamps. And if you ain't never been down to a swamp in the neck of the woods, stay out of it. If it ain't gators, it's mosquitoes. If it ain't mosquitoes, it's something else. I tell you, them mosquitoes down there in them swamps, they're so big, if you slap them, you better go ahead and knock them out because I tell you what, they'll slap you right back. So we got down in there, and we realized that the creeks and the Seminoles, they was hidden in there, but they didn't have much of a spirit for fighting afterwards. Well, while the time I was down there, Jackson, he was already done called off to New Orleans. But I realized there wasn't nothing going to be getting done on my end of things. So when the next batch of recruits come down in there, all fresh and ready to go and fight the engines, why, I went ahead and I paid one of them boys the full remainder of my days in the militia to go ahead and serve out the last of my term. And when I paid him, I saddled up, got all my belongings, and I left off and went on back to Tennessee as fast as I could. And that you ended can... my career as a warrior. You can just pay people to finish your fighting? Well, for the militia, yes and no. For the regulars, on the other hand, they got to stand up with their generals, salt lick or no. They got to see the whole thing through to the end. I see. If you're militia, you're volunteer anyhow, and so if you were to, if somebody else was to take your place, then you know, it's an equal trade, I guess. Precisely. Now, you... as far as the end of the war, which is what you'd asked me about. Well, Jackson, he finished wiping up them British down at New Orleans, and then afterwards he finished pursuing the Creeks and 
the hostile Seminoles down there in Florida, and afterwards he got them boxed up to the point of where they realized they couldn't fight anymore. So that's when they actually went ahead, got together, and they signed a treaty to end the war. But when they did so, they already lost a whole heap of land in the treaty. That was part of the terms of the treaty, is that if they went ahead and laid down their guns against the U.S. government, that they was going to go ahead and have to sign over a good deal of their ancestral homelands. Well, that seemed like a good thing at the time. I mean, who would argue to that? The spoils of war, right? But I think the whole nation was blinded to it, considering Jackson was in charge of the whole operation, and while he was the hero of New Orleans, well, we didn't realize that this was just a precursor to what was about to happen as soon as he took the hold of the presidency with that Indian removal bill. He was going to force more than just the creeks and the Seminoles off his land. He was going to get them all off. All of them off. Matter of fact, there's five tribes that no longer stay here in this neck of the woods, all because they got moved out of here by that godforsaken bill. Does Andrew Jackson hate Indians? Well, sir, I'm not at liberty to discuss what the man hates or doesn't, for the fact of the matter is that I'm not the man himself. Now, I do recall, after one particular battle, that he actually found this little creek boy laying there, and his mother was dead next to him. But Andrew Jackson's aide-de-camp, he actually found the little boy, and he brought him over there to the general himself. Well, Jackson, he took him, and brought him back into his tent and nursed him with sugar water and things like that till he got healthy enough he could send him back home to his wife up in Tennessee. And he named the boy Lincoya. So Jackson, for a time, did in fact actually have a little Native American boy as his own adopted son. My personal opinion, considering the man for who he really is, I think he may have had a moment of tender affection for this poor, helpless, unfortunate, but at the same time, him being a big wig and a politician, well, he may have done it more or less for the press to show that he had a humane side. Because what kind of man goes ahead, slaughters someone's people, takes that little boy in, and nurses him to health and sends him back up to Tennessee only to turn right around and send that very same boy's people all the way to a territory they ain't familiar with? Well, to me, sir, it does not make a lick of sense. Yeah, it's it does sound kind of like a press move because it's just enough for him to say, I don't hate the Native Americans. Look at what I did with this one boy. I saved this one boy's life. I mean, I made him part of our family. I'm not a bad guy. I don't know, maybe he even felt guilty. Maybe he knew deep down like all the people that had died as a result of his life, and maybe he wanted to do something good. Maybe, I don't know. Well, there is a very good chance of that. I will say that some folks, they find humanity within the worst circumstances. You know, I'm minded of another time, just so I go ahead and put on record that I'm not going ahead and bashing the man every chance I get just because I lost my last bid to re-election. But that is at one point that I noticed that as we was marching down the road, there was this one soldier who was laid off on the side of the road, and he was so weak he couldn't hardly even get the courage to stand up. Uh, when he did, he saw General Jackson coming down the way, and he asked General Jackson, he said, Sir, please, I ain't had nothing to eat for the past three days. Do you have anything within your rations that I might be able to share with you so I can go ahead and keep marching with you? And Jackson looked at him, and he pulled out this pocket full of acorns, and he said, Sir, this is all in the world I have to eat right now, but if you go ahead and come with me, I'll gladly share them with you. So Jackson, I would say, I don't know what to make of the man. 
obviously, politically, I'm not a very big fan of them. And concerning the Indian removal bill and things like that, I'm not a very big fan of them either. But the man does have his moments where he proves that he is, in fact, human, not just a knot on a hickory log. His reactions are confounding because one minute he's wiping out an entire tribe never to exist again, and the next minute he's, you know, he's trying to help. That's very confusing. It's hard to read somebody that goes to those extremes. You have spent a lot of time in battle. And as you were talking about, there's no way that you were ever going to explain to Polly when you know the right time to go to war was and all that. And you're, you said you were looking to go to this next battle to see what the fighting was like there. I mean, you spent quite a lot of time with a gun in your hand fighting. Is that something that you enjoy? Well, sir, I felt like when I first heard about the massacre at Fort Mims, I felt like it was my bound duty to go ahead and you know, seek justice for those massacred down there and to also defend my home and my family. But I did find, and I guess almost every red-blooded man who participated in this whole affair with me will say, and that is the fact of the matter is that you can almost find something enchanting about hearing the bullets whistling about you. Now, does that make what we've done right? Absolutely not. But at the same time, there is something that when you start participating in actions of this kind and warfare of this kind, why it just kind of grabs at you and won't let you go. And I will say that I was always the most at ease when I was in the thickest of battle. But I will also further reinstate is that when I paid that boy in the militia, the, fo- the total sum of my remainder of time left that I had to serve to stay on for me in my stead, and I went back to Tennessee to my wife and my family, that ended my career as a warrior, and I'm mighty glad of it, for if I kept on fooling about in war this way, I might have been used up at it. Yeah, you know, they say that, you've probably heard this, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. People like you, sometimes, if they're involved too much, like you said, they just run out of time one day. It's probably good that your fighting is done now. So you're done fighting, is that at least with, with a gun, is that right? Well, sir, I wish I never have to draw a bead on another man except maybe in self-defense, and that'd be about where i draw the line. Are you afraid of death? Well, I ain't looking forward to it because Lord knows there's lots more territory to be opened up and lots more animals that need hunting. But <laughs> I reckon when my time comes, well, I'll face it the same way I face down them creeks. When you say the, there's a lot of hunting left to do, we got to talk about that for a minute. I have so many things I want to ask you, but I heard, I don't know what about your life is true and what about it is some story that was made up, but there are stories that you've killed bear with your bare hands. There's a story that you killed 101 or 105 bears or something like that in one year. Is any of that true? Well, sir, some folks, they, they tend to exaggerate. As far as 105 bear in one winter, well, I don't make no claim to that. I've killed a heap of bear. Don't get it wrong. But I tell you, probably my standing record would be 47 bear in one month with 46 bullets. 47 bear with 46 bullets. Considering the fact that I killed 46 and 47 with that one bullet when I caught them two out there in the woods getting the dirty on. I was playing a little hanky-panky, so I took them both out at the same time. Don't you feel like you should let them go? Eh, nah, considering the fact I got a family to feed and I also got neighbors to help out. 
it, uh, it doesn't much matter to me one way or another because one of the biggest things that I like to try and do is if I see neighbors about in my territory who are less fortunate than myself and maybe they're sick and they can't go hunting or something like that, well, I go ahead and try and bring an ample supply of meat. And then I'll go ahead and take a little bit of extra game as opposed to what I'd use so that way I can share it with them. And that is my consolation for having fed the hungry and clothed the naked. And that's the true secret of my being a poor man to this day. But whenever I saw someone without, I was more anxious to help him than myself. For I determined I'd rather go ahead and get a good name with an empty purse as opposed to a bad name with a full purse. What is the process of hunting bear? This seems like, are these, what kind of bear are they? I mean, is this, are there lots of bear? I mean, to kill 47 bear in a month, sure. that seems like a lot. That's a couple of, there were two in a day some days. Well, I tell you, sir, there are, in fact, a lot of bear out here. If you ever get out to my neck of the woods, before I head on out, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take you on a bear hunt if you want me to. But there are, quite, in, in fact, quite a lot of bear. And these bear, they are of the black variety, they're, meaning their fur is all black. And they hide out in the cane breaks like you wouldn't believe. Especially where I live out now, there's an earthquake that happened a few years back, and it actually turned the whole place topsy-turvy, turned it upside down, and actually for a moment changed the course of the Mississippi north to south to north. And when that did so, all these animals, they got confused, and they decided to just go ahead and congregate in my neck of the woods where I'm living at now. And because of that, I can go out there and just sit on a little old stool in my front yard and go ahead and take off at least a few animals for the evening dinner. That's how plentiful game is out here. But as far as the process of hunting the bear, why I go ahead and head on out there with my hunting dogs, I got a few of them. There's Death Grip and Whirlwind and Hurricane, and I tell you, they're some of the finest hunting dogs I ever had. Now, I do mind this one time that I went ahead and I took this one fella, he was a neighbor of mine, took him out on a bear hunt because... It was winter time, and he needed some meat, as did my family. And as we went out there, well, he sees this bear not too far off. Well, he shoots, and he drops that bear. So he says, well, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to go ahead and, you know, butcher this bear right here on the spot. That's fine with me. I take my dogs, and I head off elsewhere looking for a bear of my own. Well, this bear that they went ahead and they got a hold of was a mighty tricky one because every time them dogs of mine would take off barking, I'd follow the sound of their noise and everything like that, the sound of their barking. And then when I got to the spot where they was barking at, well, there wasn't nothing there. And then they'd pick up the scent again, they'd keep on going. Until finally, I come up to this great big oak tree where I looked up and I seen this bear just sitting there in the limbs of this here tree. And I up with my rifle and I shoot dead on. But the problem is that the bear... When it come tumbling down at the crack of my rifle, wasn't all dead. So I let my rifle off to the side, and I pulled out my tomahawk and my knife, and I leapt right towards the bear as fast as I could. So I out with my knife and my tomahawk, and I lunged at the bear with my knife, and fortunately, I found its heart on the first attempt. Stabbed it right in the heart. And that's how I was able to bring down that bear so I could have it for dinner that night. Well, now I think I know where the story comes from, that you killed a bear with your bare hands. You did kill the bear, but after he'd been shot with your bare hands, but after he'd been shot once. Well, after he'd been shot, and 
Mind you, I got a good old sharp butcher knife here always to my side, as well as a tomahawk when I'm out doing such hunting like that. What does bear taste like? Bear, I would have to say, if you've ever had any of them cattle there from the Holstein River country, that's probably about what bear tastes like, just a little bit more greasy and a little bit more flavorful. Oh, yeah, I guess because of all the fat, it probably is a lot a lot more flavorful meat. Indeed it is, and we make a delicacy here that's called bear bacon. We take the front flank from right behind the front shoulders of that there bear all the way down to the ribs. It's just the top layer of the meat. Then afterwards, we dry it out and salt cure it and fry it up, and my Lord, I'm telling you, if you ain't careful, you go ahead and you start eating that. It's so good, your tongue will slap your brains out. You had mentioned, you had said something about when you were talking about where the bears hide or something, you said something about the cane breaks. What is a cane break? Yes. Well, cane break, there's this, I've heard some folks call it bamboo. I don't know why they call it that. It ain't bamboo. It's river cane. But I will admit that I have seen back east, I've seen some examples of that there bamboo plant they're talking about. So river cane kind of looks like bamboo, but it's a lot thinner and doesn't grow as fast. But it will get mighty thick. This See, this river cane, it likes to grow up in a lot of the swampy, marshy areas. And the more river cane there is, the more cover there is for animals. And so here in my neck of the woods and even back where I was originally born at, why that river cane's thick as all get out. I mean, you could go in there, and you walk three feet in, and nobody could see you. That's how thick that stuff gets. So that's why the animals hide there, then? Yes, absolutely, because if you was being hunted, you want the most cover, too, wouldn't you? Yeah, I definitely would. I definitely would. So I got to tell you, I, I understand so much more about, I guess what I would say, what makes you tick after this part of the conversation that we've already had. And one of the things I asked you at the very beginning is I asked you how you got involved in this battle with the Creek Indians. And it appears that you knew that pushing the Indians off their land was probably not the right thing to do, but at the same time, it didn't matter because by the time you had gotten involved, they had already murdered so many people that the war had already begun. And if you don't stop the war, then eventually they're going to get to your house. And so whether it was right or wrong, it was just about protecting your family. Am I summarizing that right? Yes, sir. I'd say you hit the nail on the head. Okay. And so that that makes me understand how you got involved, most definitely. And then you had also mentioned a little earlier, you had said that one of the things that you learned is that class matters, which brings us to you just referenced justice a minute ago. And is this how you got involved in Congress? Because am I on the right track here? (laughs) Well, to say that my morals got me to Congress, I would say you're about 50-50. The other 50 you don't rightly know about. That potato story was almost too much. I suppose when a person is hungry, you're going to eat. Nonetheless, Crockett was a strong man that learned from his actions and spent his life to his last day fighting for others. In the next episode, Crockett will talk about how easily he was able to change the minds of Congress with his famous It's Not Yours to Give speech. 
and he'll instruct us all on what you should do if you're lost in the cane breaks with an empty rifle and you hear a deep-throated growl. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. You won't want to miss the next one.